And so as we turn our attention now to the first 10 verses of chapter 11, chapter 11 being the final chapter, 9, 10, and 11, all giving us this incredible picture uh, of God's still ongoing plan for the nation Israel. I was reading through the news this afternoon. I get a couple of things actually from Israel. And as I was reading through there, I, I didn't actually find this there. I actually found this on the main news feed. You may have seen it. And in fact, the Iranian national soccer team banned its three top players, the guys that they had believed were going to lead them into possible World Cup contention, banned them for simply scrimmaging with the Israeli national team. Banned them for life. So there is still very much a hatred for the nation Israel that exists in our world today. Anti-Semitism is on the rise again for the umpteenth time. The world is still bought into this insane, absolutely crazy uh, BDS movement, which is to boycott, divest, and sanction Israel for what they have supposedly done to the Palestinians. And while Uh, We were traveling there in May of this year, had a chance to talk to a number of people, including our tour guide who lives in Israel full-time but travels quite a bit. He's an Israeli national, and he said the saddest thing about this is the only people that are being hurt by BDS are Palestinians because it is, in fact, the Palestinians who hold a vast majority of the jobs that were created in the West Bank by the Israelis. There is just an inordinate amount of hatred for the Jewish people. And unfortunately, a great deal of it has actually come from the church. It's come from Christians. Now, I would also qualify that statement by saying there are Christians who don't know their Bibles very well. They, they may, in fact, not actually know their Bible at all. They could be part of a group or a denomination of churches that haven't actually taught most of the prophetic word of God, which is normally uh, the case. They skip over that part. But God has a plan for national Israel. He is going to keep 100% of his covenant promises that he made to national Israel. And one day, as we will see in this particular chapter, We're going to get a definitive statement that one day all Israel will be saved. Now, it's going to come at a time that's still yet future for us. But I believe the movement towards that day is gaining steam. Would you pray with me? And then we'll turn to verse 1 here in chapter 11 of the book of Romans. Father, thank you tonight that we are in that group that loves your people. We believe that your word is true, every, every yacht, every tittle. Lord, that those who bless Israel, will they themselves be blessed. And so we bless Israel. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. We pray for the Palestinian people. We pray for the Arab nations that surround them. Lord, we know that the only answer is the Prince of Peace, who came that all who would believe in him would be saved. And so, God, we give you this time tonight. Speak to us through the majesty of your word. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Verse 1, Romans 11. He's continuing this theme. It applies specifically to national Israel. I say then, and he's going to give us three very specific reasons why God has not, and he'll answer his own question, has not forsaken the Jewish people. I say then, has God cast away his people? You can now see why that question still might actually be asked today. The nation Israel, again, I'll remind you, is one-third the size of our own San Bernardino County, just to the east of us. Inside of its borders are roughly eight and about half million people. It's one of the tiniest nations on the face of the earth. They constitute less than two-tenths of one percent of the entire population of the world. And yet the UN debates Israel more than any other nation on the face of the earth. They spend more time on Israel than they do on North Korea. They spend more time on Israel than they do on China. They spend more time on Israel than they do on Russia. They spend more time on Israel than any other nation, debating whether they have the right to exist, debating whether they should give up more land. And as you travel to Israel, there'll be something that you'll notice immediately Israel is tiny. It's a very small country. It's not even the size of some of our counties here in California. Has God cast away his people? He answers his own question. He says, certainly not. And he gives the first of his reasons. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? And he gives the second of these two defenses, the prophet Elijah, and how he pleads with God against Israel. And he goes on to quote from chapter 19. We'll get there in a little bit. But as we move into this section, this final section on God's dealing with with national Israel, and I use that term very specifically Because Israel is an ethnos. They are an ethnic group of people. They are joined together by a common, extremely unique DNA. It is very testable from all of the rest of the world's population. And furthermore, they speak their own language. They speak Hebrew. And so, interestingly enough, when the Jewish people came back into the land in 1948... Most of them did not speak biblical Hebrew. They didn't speak really Hebrew. They spoke Yiddish. And so you have now several generations that have come back into the land, and they're actually, you have young people teaching old people how to properly speak Hebrew. That's how young the nation is. Just celebrated its 70th birthday. 7 0. But they've been there for thousands of years. The Roman government so considered Israel to be a thought uh, or a, a, a thought that they had to keep an eye on, a, a nation that was, that was troubled. They actually named them a sect of nefaria, a nefarious sect. In other words, the Jewish people were a threat to the, to the Pax Romana, the Roman peace. In his great book, and I'd encourage you to read it if you're a history buff, 
written by Arnold Toynbee, died in 1975. His book, Choose Life, he actually refers to Israel as a fossil civilization because of the, the, the absolute ancient and very clear history that belongs to the Jewish people. Anyone that says that the Jewish people haven't been in, haven't been in the land but since 1948 has not been there. You don't have to go very far. Every spade that gets turned of dirt, someone plants a tree in their garden in Israel and they dig up archaeological artifacts. Things from clay bulla that have King David's name on them. It is clear that the Jewish people have dwelled in the land that we call Israel for several millennia. And yet, looks like if any, if any nation on earth you could call a persecuted nation, it's the Jewish people. Now, oddly enough, they happen to also be one of the most prosperous people on the face of the earth. I wonder how that happens. I wonder why that is. How can a nation that has two-tenths of the population of the, of the entire world be the ninth largest economy? How can they have the second largest gross domestic product relative to the size of their populace? How can they have produced so many pieces of technology that we now depend on? If you own a cell phone, thank the Jewish people. If you own a pacemaker, thank the Jewish people. If you've ever used the internet, oops, thank the Jewish people. Wasn't Al Gore. More than 20% of the world's Nobel laureates, Jewish people. Has God forsaken them? The Bible says no. There is a literal future for a literal nation. And so Paul begins by naming himself as a testator to that fact, the first proof, if you will. Why in the world would Paul devote his life? Now remember Paul, when we first met him, uh, as he's converted in Acts chapter 9, he's not on his way to Damascus to see if he can find some Christians so he can say, you know, I really want to hear about what you have to say. He's on his way to Damascus to hopefully find Christians to bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial, hopefully to kill them. So he was a persecutor of Christians. And yet he being a Jew, it says, of the tribe of Ab- uh, descendant of Abraham and of the tribe of Benjamin, one of the preferred tribes, by the way, the two most preferred tribes of Jewish people is Judah and Benjamin. He said, I'm a Benjamite. And Paul says, look, I, I used to be Saul of Tarsus. But if you want to know my history, Pharisee of Pharisees. Studied in the law and of the law, haven't missed any of it. He said, so why would somebody who so identifies with the Jewish people persecute the very Christ that has saved me? He said, if there, in essence, is a hope for me, 
there's a hope for every Jew. There was hope for Paul. There had to be hope for the Jewish people. When you read Paul's study upon himself, which is really the letter that's written to the church at Philippi with this regard, he says there in verses 4 through 6, If anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far the more, for I was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, to the law, a Pharisee, and as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, and as to righteousness, which is in the law, blameless. That's pretty braggadocious. That's kind of like saying, I, I'm pretty much exactly what he says there, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I'm a super Hebrew. But I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord. Of all the evidence that would have stood out in Paul's mind, everything that he had heard bantered back and forth as he stood in with those who tried Stephen and then stoned him to death. Can you imagine? He's listening to the arguments. This man is a Christian. Can you imagine what the Apostle Paul, who was holding the garments of those who stoned Stephen, thought when Stephen said, do not hold this against them? Oh, my goodness. Paul was a perfect witness to bring to bear to this, that God still has a plan for national Israel because he was an example of God's amazing grace. Amen? Amen. God's wonderful mercy. Amen? Did Paul deserve to be saved? Absolutely not. Neither do you. Neither do I. But he was saved. And so Paul was basically saying, hey, if I'm not going to be saved, then maybe we could talk about this. But I am saved. So there's no debating this issue in my mind. The Jewish people can't possibly be so far gone that they can't be saved because I was really far gone. He, he, was, he was playing in left field and nobody else was on the, on the diamond. He actually called himself there in 1 Corinthians, interestingly enough, one born out of due time. He's kind of referring to his, he's like, well, if I'd just been born a little bit later, it would have made some sense because the gospel would have gone out and I probably would have believed it right away. But instead, he was born at a time where he was actually indoctrinated, if you will, into all things Hebrew. Very legalistic. And yet we, we see, you ever wonder why Paul's conversion experience is listed three times in the book of Acts? It's kind of redundant if you look at it that way. I don't think Dr. Luke put it in there three times because, you know, he was bragging on Paul. He put it in there three times because he's bragging on God. He's bragging on God's grace. He's bragging on his mercy. He's saying if there's hope for this knucklehead, there's hope for everyone. And boy, do I thank Jesus for, for struggling and striving with knuckleheads because I'm one. KFC, Knuckleheads for Christ. <laughs> Amen? Paul calls himself as the first witness. He goes on in verse 2, and he talks about the faithful remnant, and he uses the picture of the prophet Elijah. I love the story of the prophet Elisha. 
And so he calls his second witness, if you will, beginning in verse 2. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Now remember, when we're talking about God's foreknowledge and his predestination, it always is in sync with man's choices. It isn't that God just forced them to be his chosen people. He called them his chosen people, and they had to respond to that choice of being called and chosen. They, they had to be obedient to the calling that was placed upon their life. That's why they got in so much trouble, because they refused to respond to the calling that was placed upon their life, and they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years in disobedience. So here's the deal. He said, or do you not know what Scripture says of Elijah? How he pleads with God against Israel, saying, you see, Elijah wasn't exactly okay with what was happening with little Miss Jezebel. Here's this tiny woman, great power. She brings along her prophets. She's pretty much got the world by a string, and she's chasing after the prophet Elijah. And Elijah says this. He says, Lord, they've killed your prophets and torn down your altars. He's quoting from 1 Kings 19 here. And I alone am left, and they seek my life now. He's basically saying, oh, woe is me. I got this little tiny woman chasing me. She's going to kill me. The dude has just defeated the prophets of Baal. He stood on the top of Mount Carmel, this incredible altar. The prophets of Baal are chanting. They're cutting themselves. They're trying to light their sacrifice on fire. He's saying, ah, you guys are nothing. He pours water on his sacrifice, and then he starts messing with them. So is your God going to the bathroom? The same guy is now here in chapter 19. I'm alone. Isn't that insane? If he's alone now, he was probably alone with God on Mount Carmel, amen? What happened? He won. And now he's saying, I'm alone. Look how God responds. But what does the divine response say to him? What does God say? What's God's word to Elijah? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so then, at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. You see, your election as believers today, right now, in our day and time, in the age of grace, your election is still by the grace of God. You are not worthy of your salvation. It's a gift. He gave you faith to believe. And all God is saying here is, look, no one has ever been saved simply because they belong to a specific people group. No one has ever been victorious because they simply did the right religious things. The only way you're going to have victory and the only way you're going to be saved is by grace working through faith. And that not of yourself, it is in fact a gift of God. It was true for Elijah, 
It was true for David. It was true for Abraham. It was true, true for those who believed by faith. It was true for Rahab. It was period true that no one ever comes into a right relationship with God simply because they are genetically disposed because they belong to an ethnos. You're okay with God because of God's grace. And that is the only way you're okay with God. And if you don't have his divine grace, you don't have his divine forgiveness. And if you don't have his divine forgiveness, you don't have his divine justification. If you don't have his divine justification, you will never have his divine sanctification. And if you don't have his divine sanctification, you will never experience his divine glorification. Period. End of conversation. So he's saying, look, it's always been the same. So if they weren't saved then by any other reason than God's grace, then is there still hope for national Israel today? Oh, hallelujah, praise the Lord God in heaven. Yes, is the answer to that question. And so he goes on to say, and if by grace then it's no longer works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. I love that. We sing a song, Grace on Top of Grace, amen? Look, grace is grace. Grace is unmerited favor from God. It has absolutely nothing to do with what you do to to believe it, to receive it. Even faith can become works if you don't recognize that the faith that we have to believe is a gift from God. All of a sudden you can think, well, I just worked myself up into saving faith. Grace is grace. And family, it's grace on top of grace that's going to get us home. It's ever-abounding grace. It's unending grace. It is abundant grace that's going to get you to heaven. It's abundant grace that's going to get everybody to heaven, including the Jewish people, even though their hearts are obstinately hard. And so he says, but if it's works and no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. You see, when you walk in obstinance, any of you have children? Have you ever experienced obstinance with your children? Maybe it is in the treat cabinet, if you have such a thing in your home. You know, you cannot live by Oreos alone. Children cannot live by the mouth of Oreos alone. You, you can go to the, and you can tell them, look, you've you, you got to eat something other than Oreos. But they can fold their arms and look at you like, I can live off of Oreos. Until all of their teeth fall out and they can no longer eat and they die. You see, even good things can add to your obstinance. I mean, who doesn't like Oreos dipped in milk? Especially the double-stuffed ones. You see, they're actually good. Works are good. The law is good. God's commandments are good. Matter of fact, they're better than good. They're God's best. But you can take those things and you can become even obstinate with the law. You can say, I'm such a good keeper of the law that I don't need grace. 
I'm such a marvelous work of the Lord that I don't need mercy. I am so much better than everyone else because here's what happens with us as humankind, right? Anybody ever do this? Your comparison of your import to God is based on how much better you are than other sinners. So our comparison is not the holiness of God. It's the unholiness of people. Trust me, you can find somebody more or less holy than you. You can find a whole bunch of people a whole lot less holy than you. And you're going to find some people who are more holy than you if you have a holiness ometer. <laughs> Here's your problem. God's not judging you by other people. He's judging you by his perfect Son, Jesus, the sinless Lamb of God. So you better hope it's grace on top of grace. Because you can find some worse, and you can find some better, but none of that matters because you're going to be compared to the Holy One of Israel. Now here's the good news for the Jewish people. There's still hope. Because no matter how obstinate you've gotten over good things, God lets us make those turnarounds. Anybody thankful for being able to turn around? Amen. Thankful for repentance? Hallelujah. Glory to God? Yeah. He's a God of do-overs. Amen? I love do-overs. Because sometimes I do, and I need to do it over. Because I didn't do it very well the first time. Amen? He goes on to remind us that in this Israel is a, is a very privileged nation, even though they were blinded. And so he begins to talk to us about the, the condition of heart, and I think this is so important for us. And while this passage very specifically uh, applies to the nation Israel, it, it, its content in the way it's applied to, to grace is applicable to all of us. But the Jewish people are a very special and a very privileged people. No other people on the face of the earth can claim Jesus is one of us. Amen? Your Savior is Jewish. No other people on earth can say, God actually talked with us. The Jewish people can. No one can say, God actually came down to earth and wrote some commands and gave them to us as a people, including one of those commands that was given specifically to us, which is the Sabbath. It is between you and him alone, says the Lord. So the Sabbath command, not the Sabbath rest, but the Sabbath command was actually for the Jewish people themselves. Read the book of Exodus. You see, they're a privileged nation. And furthermore, they're genetically unique. They even are a very special people in a human sense. And so in that, God has foreknown who they are, predetermined their, their existence. There is no reason after what happened during the Second World War 
When you travel to Israel and you go to Jerusalem, you travel to one of the places that we stop in our tour is Yad Vashem. It means a memorial and a name. And the reason being is that the Jewish people were nearly exterminated during the Second World War. And so in that great hall is a memorial and a name. Every last Holocaust victim, man, woman, and child, has a book in there, and their name is in there. That's how close the Jewish people came to being exterminated from the face of the earth. And yet, they're still here. The same thing, by the way, little known fact, happened during the Spanish Inquisition. It was not only those who were forced to make a profession of faith to Christianity, but as people forced to denounce Judaism. Nearly wiped out then. We don't have to look at the Romans. We know what they did. And before them, the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Carthaginians, the Medes. They have been persecuted since, the, since Adam and Eve, really. I mean, look, there's only four people in the original community that is here on this earth. Smallest unit of human society is the family. This family happens to have two kids. And one of the kids kills the other child. This is a messed up world. That's the beginning of the Jewish family, by the way. Because out of them, they're going to get to Noah. Noah's going to have himself and seven other members. Eight of them are going to make it to the other side of the flood. And guess what? They're all related to Adam. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Semitic. Crazy. They're the only group to be able to say that we are this unique people. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 6 through 8 says this, For you are a holy people to your Lord the God of Israel. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all of the people who are on the faces of the earth. Is that plain enough for you? That's God writing to the Jewish people through Moses in the Torah, the first five books. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any of the peoples. Boy, howdy. Matter of fact, one of the smallest people groups on the face of the earth. And he goes on to say, for you were at that time the fewest of all the peoples. Can you imagine when they got to Kadesh Barnea? And Joshua and Caleb look in. They send in the spies. The spies bring back a report. We're not going. We're grasshoppers to them. Why? Because the Canaanites dwelled in that land. They had been unfaithful. They'd been out of the land. Abraham, remember, left. He travels down. He's got to get some food. Jacob and his sons. You know the story. Joseph's multicolored coat gets him into trouble. They spent 400 years in slavery in Egypt. They kind of left the homeland untended. 
You can still see the remnants of the Canaanite city to this day. You traveled to Dan. It's a Canaanite city. Canaanite walls and the gate of Abraham. But because the Lord loved you, aren't you glad Jesus loves you this you know? You see, because the Lord loves you, not because you're super holy, not because you all of a sudden figured it out, and not because the Jewish people all of a sudden figured it out, and he kept an oath which he swore to your forefathers. Basically, he's saying, look, I simply love you, and I promised that I would take care of you. You're my people. You're my peeps. The Jewish people are still God's peeps. And you do not want to be against God. So you better be for the Jewish people. Frankly, it is political suicide from a human standpoint to be for the Jewish people, but it is holy suicide to be against them as far as God's concerned. So I'm taking political suicide. I will bless those who bless you. And I will curse those who curse you, says the Lord. You want to know whose land the land is that is currently called Israel? Read the book of Joel. It is God's land. He gave it to them as an everlasting possession in obedience. So God's still got a plan because he made some promises to them that are pretty extreme. We'll look at some of those tonight as we wrap up. You see, the truth is, is that Israel right now is only partially blind. They're not completely blind. And the beauty of it is, is just as it has always been, all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And in fact, when you look at the composition of the early church, it was almost 100% Jewish. If you look at what was going on, read the book of Acts, which we finished on Sunday nights not long ago. When you get to chapter 2, Peter is preaching to you men of Israel. And he says, this Jesus whom you crucified. He wasn't exactly being politically expedient when he said that. He says, y'all killed the Messiah. They're like, what are we to do with this? And 3,000 get saved, and then 5,000 get saved, and they were probably close to 100% Jewish people. And likely by the, the turn of the first year or two of the founding of the church, there were undoubtedly hundreds of thousands of believers in what was called then by the Romans, Palestine, not by God, but by the Romans. There were probably hundreds of thousands of Jewish Christians. Amen? But Israel has an issue. The most repeated passage of Scripture found in the New Testament is actually from the prophet Isaiah. And it's this. It's in Isaiah 6, verses 9 through 13. And it's quoted in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Hearing you will hear and shall not understand. 
Seeing you will see and not perceive. For the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears bare and hard of hearing. Their eyes have been closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, lest they should understand with their hearts and turn so that I should heal them. You might remember that I shared with you the real problem with Jonah was he actually believed God. He knew that if he went and preached the gospel that people would get saved. You you see, the Jewish people have had a remnant all along. God's been speaking into their life. And you know some of them. A couple of them have books named after them. Daniel, Ezekiel. You know the boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Queen Esther. All part of the remnant. All part of those 7,000 left alive who still fear the Lord. God's always had a witness in Israel. It's a beautiful thing. That book of remembrance there in Malachi chapter 3, which is the foundation for the name of the Holocaust Memorial in Jerusalem, Yad Vashem. It's because God does have a really good memory. And he knows those who were his. That godly remnant absolutely exists. It continues to exist to this day. Before Jesus was born, Zacharias, Elizabeth, Mary, Joseph. You can go through the names. You know who they are. They were waiting in faith for Messiah. It's a beautiful picture. So God has to have a plan for them going forward. He's going to, by gracious choice, Eclogion Karalitos. He is going to give them a gracious opportunity. And we're going to look at it in much more detail next time in the book of Zechariah. One day they're going to mourn him whom they pierced. They're going to see Messiah for who he is. They're They're going to actually seek him and they're going to find him. But the prophet Isaiah becomes... Kind of their, their standard. You see, the nation had departed from God. Elijah wasn't out of his mind and thinking, am I alone? You traveled to Israel today, you might ask the same question. And oddly enough, not because of other religions, but because of humanism, because of secularism, because of atheism, agnosticism. It hasn't exactly been easy to be a Jewish person on the face of the earth. There's been a lot of things to kind of draw their attention away from the Lord. Just like it was in Elijah's day. And the fact that much of the nation has elected to reject Christ is not uh, an example of God having rejected the nation in its entirety. Elijah was just flat out wrong. There were a whole bunch of people that actually had not bowed the knee to Baal. He just didn't know where they were. He hadn't talked to them. And so that blindness in part that we'll see is really God's way of reminding us that this remnant that exists today, I have two very dear friends on this earth. Both of them are Jewish. Both of them attended Torah school. 
Uh, both of them have served actually in their synagogues as young people. Um, both of them love uh, the Lord today. Both of them are what I like to call completed because they not only are of the lineage of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they're also saved because Jesus Christ is Lord. So there are Christians who are Jewish people all over the face of the earth. We're going to get a chance. Actually, in October, we have Dr. Mitch Glazer coming from Chosen People's Ministry. He's going to share on the Fall Feast of Israel. So you get a little history from Dr. Glazer. Great study, by the way. From Elijah today, the Jews are very religious. But they largely are secular if you travel to Israel today. Still go to synagogue. Still read the Torah. Still celebrate Passover. But it's largely traditional. It's part of their heritage. But one day, they're going to actually understand why that bone is on that Seder plate. They're going to exactly know why that bone's not broken. It's going to all of a sudden light bulbs... It's him. It's Yahweh, Lord of hosts. It's Messiah. It's Messiah Hamashiach. So scripture itself, verse 7. What then? Israel's not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. All who call upon the name of the Lord, amen? If you want to know if you're elect, call on the name of the Lord. People ask me that question. Well, how do I know I'm elect? Call on the name of the Lord. Believe and receive and be saved. I think we make too much out of God's election and not enough out of our selection. God's electing, but we still need to do some selecting of his election, amen? So the whosoever's that will, those are the elect. The elective obtained it. The rest were blinded, just as is written. God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear. And he goes on to quote from the 69th Psalm, a Psalm of David. And you have to put this into a very Jewish perspective when you, when you see this. You see, the table in a Jewish home was the place of hospitality. And even if your enemy came and he was hungry, you were to feed him. You needed to make sure that you had this part right because you never knew when you might be entertaining an angel unaware. You never knew when the Lord might show up at your door. You never knew when you might actually entertain perhaps Elijah who is to come. And so they were always making sure that they were hospitable. But let their table become a snare and a trap. In other words, you're being hospitable, but you're actually still not looking for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords to come. You're not looking for Messiah still. You're just looking to be hospitable. So your good thing has actually become a trap. Even your wonderful hospitality has now been turned into another rule that you keep. That's why Jesus said, you know, you strain at a gnat 
but you choke on a camel. You're over there pouring your wine through a second and a third sieve to make sure there's no bugs. You don't want to have any meat on the, with blood in it on the Sabbath. And that bug, that's a meat with blood in it. But the grace of God came in Messiah and you didn't even see him. And we know that because of what the gospel plainly declares. We do not want this man to rule over us. That's what they said, right? Give us Barabbas. Give us the other Jesus. Crazy transliteration of that name. His name also is Jesus. Bar, son of Arabas. Just like Jacob. Give us the other son of Jesus. Oh, by the way, he's a murderer. But we'll take him. Because we want a military ruler. We want, we want somebody who's going to take care of the Romans. This grace thing, we don't really care about that. That's why we need to pray that the blinders come off. A stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their backs always. In other words, God's saying, look, I'm going to make life hard. Why? Because I want you to know me. I want you to find grace. I want you to receive mercy. I want you to know what it is. I love you. Do you remember my original covenant with you? I love you. I don't hate you. I love you. And I made promises to you. But I ask you to be obedient. I ask you to not do these certain things. I ask you to make me first. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Not education. Not money, not Zionism, which has become basically a religion. I want to be your love. I want to be your God. And so he says, it's got to get hard. And it's hard. No one has that power outside of God. And so their table becomes a, a trap. And he, he quotes from this beautiful messianic passage. And much like Psalm 22, which has the same thing, it basically says, look, it's, it's a trap. There's a curse that goes with this. You know, when Jesus was on the cross and he says, the bulls of Bashan have surrounded me, he's looking out and he's seeing the, the people he said, the very people that should love me are the ones that are sitting there jeering and wagging their tongue at me. That's not going to go good. I'm pretty sure God the Father was not overly happy with that scene. Now, it doesn't mean he's forsaken them. He's given them an opportunity, and it still exists today. And praise the Lord that the Lord is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Amen? Amen. Including the Jewish people. And unfortunately, one of the saddest commentaries in humanity is that people often put their trust in things that cannot save them. 
pagan religions, cultic religions, unbiblical Christianity. And I use that term very loosely because it's actually an oxymoron because to be a real Christian means that you believe the Bible. But there are churches that no longer believe the Bible that say they're Christians. There are cults that say they're Christians and they actually have a Bible, but they have three other books to go with it that they say are more important. And they talk about a God who lives on a planet Kalob, someplace out in the middle of the galaxy, and God is actually a dude who has a bunch of wives. God is not flesh and blood. He is spirit. So if your God is just flesh and blood, then you have the wrong God. And if your son of God has brothers that are heavenly as well, then you have the wrong Jesus. So he's saying, look, I've always presented my son to my people. They were so set up. When they left Egypt, think about the Passover for a moment. Can you imagine as, as they're celebrating that Seder and, and they hide the lump of leaven and they go get the leaven and they find that one piece and they finally sweep it out of the house? Because you have to repent in order to be saved. Amen? They're, they're, they're looking at the, there's the, there's the bitterness of the old life. The bitter herbs. Can you imagine what God told them to do underneath that last plague? said, I want you to go and slaughter an innocent animal, one for every ten. And I want you to take the blood from that animal, and I want you to put it on the doorposts and the lentils of your home. They're doing this and this and this, every single opening in the house. Huh. Honey, that's a cross, isn't it? We just made a cross out of blood. And the angel of death will pass over because he who believes in him, though he shall die, he shall live. You see, God was faithful. God gave them this beautiful picture. Their eyes were darkened so that they could not see. Wasn't that God wasn't speaking? Wasn't that God wasn't clear? God was really clear. But when you start clinging to table decorations and rules and regulations and not to grace and mercy and faith, you will always end up in the wrong place. Because by the works of the flesh is no one justified. But it's also true that if you will seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. I'll leave you with this. The next time you maybe are talking with a Jewish friend, it's actually found in the book of Proverbs, and it's chapter 30. This is an interesting set of Proverbs because it's written by a man named Agur, who we don't know much about. But it says in verse 2, Surely I am more stupid than any man. Now, I don't know if you're going to write a letter to somebody that that's the way you want to open it. 
but he does. I do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom nor have the knowledge of the Holy One. But notice what he says. He asks a question in verse 4, which is very long. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? What does the book of Ephesians say? He first descended who ascended. This is the Old Testament. This is written during the time of Solomon, a thousand years before Jesus came. Who has gathered the wind in his fists? You know what he's doing right now. He's saying, uh, you remember reading the, the Pentateuch? You remember reading the book of Genesis? You remember what it says there? And God created the heavens and the earth in the Barashet, the beginning. Who has bound the waters in a garment? He's now talking about what Job wrote. Who has established all the ends of the earth? And then he says something that blows you out of the water if you're a believer, and it should have caused everyone in that day to go, oh my goodness, what is his name and what is his son's name? Because we know who it is that did that. That would be Yahweh, Lord of hosts, and he has a son. His name is Yeshua HaMashiach. Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your time that you've given us tonight. Lord, you actually created this time that we could gather together, and we are so grateful for it. Thank you for your word, and we want to just pray right now for the peace, the prosperity of Jerusalem, but most importantly, for the light bulb to go on in Israel. God, would you begin even now to just call by your marvelous grace them who will be saved. Lord, as we have a Bible college there and Lord, people ministering constantly in Israel, would you give us favor, Lord, able to speak into the lives of those who will listen? How would you break down the walls? Would you make your name great? Would you cause your holiness Lord, do not be contained in the Hakotel, uh, that, that stone wall that's left from Herod's temple. But would your name be great throughout the land by your spirit, for it is by your spirit that people come to know you. And so, Lord, aliven the spirits of the Jewish people. We know that there's a time coming. We call it the tribulation. We call it the time of Jacob's trouble, the very last days that the light will go on for sure. But Lord, if you would work right now, we'd be so blessed to hear that salvation has come to your people. And so Lord, make us vessels to that end. Give us a heart for Israel. And Lord, we pray too for the Palestinian people. We pray for the Syrian people. We pray for the Iraqi people, the Iranian people, the Saudi people, the Egyptian people. Lord, for all are saved the same way. And so, God, would you pour out your spirit in these last days that many would be saved before you come for your church. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.